What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, you know what? It's a new month. Is it? Yeah, it is. And I'm thinking to myself that we should probably have something like a month called Support Our Supporters. Support Our Supporters? Support Our Supporters. We've got some people who support our show. Yeah. And I want to show them some love. Okay. Yeah. So we've got someone who is regularly supporting our show, who's the industry buffet himself, Jason mm-hmm. Furman mm-hmm. from Einswick Dog Quip. Einswick Dog Quip. Einswick. Yeah. I know you're a fan of Jason's equipment. You know what? Sometimes I get these ideas in my head. Mm-hmm. Let's go I'm with like, it. Jason, with it. I've got this idea for a tug and I want it to be this big and this round and made of leather. Yep. You got one? He goes, no, that doesn't exist, you idiot, but I can get it made. I go, do it, sir. He's pretty good like that, the old buffet, isn't he? Yeah. We should get Teespring. The buffet. The- <laughs> Teespring merch made up. <laughs> Support the buffet. Support the buff. Yeah. But we've got people in other parts of the world that are Yeah, you know who's show? not a buffet? Tell me. Mac Lapointe. Mac Lapointe is French for Mark. For not a buffet. Yeah, for not a buffet. And he is from? Canine Dynamics. Canine Dynamics. In Canada. Yep. Please don't slow this one down. <laughs> so if I were in North America, that's where I'd be getting my, yeah. my working dog equipment from. He's got a great array of gear as well. He does. Yeah. Yep. And he's a very generous guy. Yeah. Mm. You know who else is a supporter of the show? That would have to be Kindred Canine. Mm. Mel Benware. Our good friend Mel Benware. She has got to be one of the best travel to your home, train the dog in your home dog trainers. Absolutely. In the area that she's in, which Richmond, is- Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> Or Ashland, Virginia. She yeah. comes from Ashland, Virginia, but she services all the area around there. She's been a great support for the show and also a great support for the International Association of Canine Professionals. That's right. Who we are proud members of as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you're in Australia and you need dog equipment, mm-hmm. Jason Furman. Einswick Dog, dog Quip. Yep. Einswick Dog Quip. Einswick. If you're in North America, you yep. need working dog equipment, Mark Point. <laughs> <laughs> Canine Dynamics. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're in Ashland, Virginia, yep. or Richmond, Virginia. Yep. In that general area. Yep. And you need pet dog training. Melanie Benway. Melanie Benway. Kindred canine. Kindred canine. Yep. That's it. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And joining us today, all the way from Eugene, Oregon, is Grisha Stewart. Grisha, welcome. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Pat. Welcome, Grisha. It's been quite an ordeal to catch up with each other, but we finally did it. We're here. That's right. Hey, you know, uh, I saw you in person at Colorado when you came over to do the conference. And I think twice I came over to talk to you. And you were just shrouded in people every single time you're in that trades room. 
Uh, you were in mm-hmm. there a couple of times and they're the only two times that I actually saw you in person. And I made my way over and yeah, you were just like inundated with people and I thought oh, I'll come back later. And the second time I saw you in there, I came over again and same thing. So I thought, man, you know, Bart Bellin sitting over there and there's two people with him and Grisha Stewart's like shrouded in you know, <laughs> 50 people. So yeah, you were, you were pretty hard to get on. So I did make an attempt to come over and speak to you in person and it just, it, it just didn't happen. So, and the other time I couldn't find you, I asked Melanie where you were and she tried to look for you at one stage. So it just didn't happen. We were, I think we were going to try and live conference with you there or live interview you there, but uh, it didn't happen. So here we are anyway, we made it happen after all this time, you know, you, yeah. And you're right. COVID sort of happened in between all of us and it just created a bit of a shit fight for everybody around the world. But once yeah. again, here well, we are, we made it. No longer surrounded with people. That's for <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And, and not again for the foreseeable future. Yes. Uh, and, and actually I was really pleasantly surprised at that conference that there was so much interest in the work that I did. Uh, I, that was probably the one conference where I was actually nervous about presenting because it being a balanced dog trainer conference that that I, I wasn't sure exactly how I would be received if people would think just judge either way and I think it was really nice to to have the what I had to offer be received really well and and for people to be open-minded to that but also just welcoming it from a perspective of what tool can they add to their to their box that can help the dogs yeah, I think that's one of the cool things about the ICP, certainly from my point of view, is that that's what balance is. It's a full spectrum. And so we listen to everybody and, and take in. And that's exactly as you say, like, is this a tool I can use? Can I learn this and put it in my in my bag of tricks that I can pull out if it's the appropriate thing to do? So you were there talking about yeah. BAT, behavioral adjustment therapy. And that's kind of your, that's what you're super well known for and mm. have been teaching all over the world. And have been to Australia. Trish brought you out. Yeah, I was in Melbourne and uh, Sydney and Cairns as mm. well. So that's all cool, but let's go back to the start, right? So first time on the show, we usually love to hear people's backstories and find out how did this come to be? Because we sort of take people for granted. Everybody in the industry, you know, really knows your name and knows what you're about. But I would really like to hear the backstory. Take us all the way right to the start. And how did this come to be? What mm. other careers did you have prior to being a dog trainer? And how, what was your progression like into this part of the industry? So it's interesting when you said like the start. And so I'm going back to, you know, very young and then yeah. career. So that was quite a bit later. Mm-hmm. So I was a mathematician before I was a dog trainer. I wow. had a master's in mathematics. And it's definitely one of those things where you would go to a party or I would go to a party and, and people say, what do you do? And I said, I teach math. And then that would be the end. Of the <laughs> like I'm an accountant. Very different, right? As a dog trainer, <laughs> that everyone's always interested in what we yeah. do and how can we solve all of their problems. Funny thing you say that, Grisha, I used to go to parties and, you know, when I'd talk about being a dog trainer, all I'd do was be overwhelmed with talking about dogs all night from people. And they were just telling me the my dog stories all the time. So I did get to the stage where I'd just tell people that I was an accountant or something like that. And then they just sort of go, oh, cool. There's uh, there's something happening over there. <laughs> so. I think his hair is on fire. I'm going to go that way. Yeah. <laughs> It's a funny one because not too many people then would say, hey, I've got this really complex tax issue and um, I'm just going to take all your time now and I need you to hold my hand and walk me through it and I'm only going to half listen and I'm not going (laughs) to actually do any of the things that you said. And did you say you're a a world-renowned expert in tax? Right. Well, I'm going to argue with you. (laughs) (laughs) Because my grandfather used to do taxes. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that doesn't happen. No. 
Okay, so mathematician, right? Prior to yeah, getting so into that. I was a theoretical mathematician. So similarly, when people say, when they hear mathematics, they think taxes or accounting or something like mm. that. And numbers were actually not my specialty. So mine was basically logic and critical thinking and proofs about the structure of numbers and different ways that we can structure things. And so there is sort of a, a correlation between that work and this, which is to think outside of the box, mm. problems critical thinking and uh but yeah in terms of a party people sort of get me confused with very different style of dog training and then similarly with the mathematics it would be a different field of mathematics but we sort of go to what we know mm-hmm. right? so tell us about the transition um how was it that the mathematician ends up as a dog trainer? Well, actually, I sorry to cut in on you there. I did see in your bio that you've also almost got a master's in psychology as well. I have, yes, and that that was in uh, with the animal within the animal behavior field, though. So it was a kind of like a choose your own adventure psychology program. So you could figure out whatever it is you wanted to study. And so when I was originally developing that into a formal book that was the thesis project was this was the bat book. And so my research or my, my classes, definitely lots of human psychology, but the goal was to have it be a a canine psychology degree essentially. Mm. However, the bat really just took off. And so I was traveling all over the world and I didn't have time to finish that degree and I already had a master's. So I thought, ah, that's close enough. (laughs) Good call. Yeah, unlike my wife who she finishes one degree and she goes, okay, that's it. Then she'll come to me and go, uh, I've just seen online there's this amazing, you know, one on canine diets. And so I said, she told me the other day, I said, just do it. She was even at one stage talking about like completely looking into doing another course as a GP, like a doctor. And um, wow. we kind of had conversations around that because she, I mean, look, she's intelligent enough to do it. And she's she always trumps, her grades are just enormous. Like she's always, you know head of the class, but I just said, do you really want to do like five to six years of schooling again? And I said, don't answer that because I just know she'll go, yeah, yeah, love it. That's funny. So you've got nearly the behavioral science degree. I want to hear this story. How did you get into dogs? Transition from math uh, into dog training. So first I I had a mathematics degree and I'm teaching math. I'm fully into mathematics, but I get a dog. Mm. So when you get a dog, you start wanting to learn all that you can about dogs, or I particularly did. And actually, before I even got the dog, my partner at the time said, you need to read something about dogs before we get it. So even though I had a dog, lots of dogs in my childhood, there was a big span of time with no dogs. And so I agreed. And so I got 50 books, and I read them all. 50 books. made a little book report on them and gave it to him and said, okay, now can we have a dog? So he was getting his PhD in computer science. That was sufficient for him. (laughs) (laughs) Hang on. Let me explore that for a second. What was of the 50 books hit me with some titles? When was this? So this would have been 2000. No. Yeah. Somewhere in that range, right around 2000. Mm -hmm. And it was anywhere from don't shoot the dog to the dog listener by Jan Fennell to monks of new skates to Oh, who's the one that does walkies? Oh, Barbara um, Woodhouse. Barbara Woodhouse. Mm. So clicker training books, like the whole gamut. Okay, so Karen cool. Pryor, I think, was out by then. Yeah, so I read those books. Then we got a dog, a rescue dog. We took her to classes, and I just fell in love with the whole idea of dog training. Even though I was 
actively working in the math field, I, I got all of my time sort of got sucked into dogs. And um, yeah, that was about the beginning. And, oh, and basically when I, when I told my advisor that I was switching over from teaching math to my, so my graduate advisor who had worked with me before, when I switched over from teaching math to teaching dogs, it was kind of like I had told him I was going to go become a prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be a dog trainer. Like, <laughs> I'm going to go be a dog trainer. It's funny you say that. And I've regularly told people that my grandmother felt that I was a gypsy when I told her that I wanted to be a dog trainer. Like she was very highbrow and very societal. She was quite a snob because you know, my family came from academics and so forth on my father's side. And uh, she thought that was really beneath me and the family to become a, a dog trainer, to break from the family tradition of having, you know, like a good education behind you and wanting to do blue and white collar work and so forth like that. And when I told her, she said, oh, Glenn, I can't believe that you want to do this and drag our name through the mud. Oh my god! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, that that definitely tops my story. Yeah, I, I could I could probably fill about ten episodes just on my grandmother and the things that she used to say and do to people. Like she bring grown men to tears. Like she was a very strong matriarchal figure in our family, and you just did not cross her. Like, don't get me wrong, she was a very loving woman but a very strong, very strong character in the family. It's kind of funny. If you watch The Crown season four and Gillian Anderson's version of Margaret Thatcher, that's what my grandmother was like. She was very matriarchal, but very bound in family duty and doing all the cooking and, and didn't believe that the men used to go and sit with the men and the women would go and, you know, cook in the in the, in the the kitchen together. Yes, you, you had your role and everything like that, but amazing, amazing. It's funny you both talk about like it was an odd thing to become a dog trainer. I used to I used to lie that I was a dog trainer before I even was one. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't know if you know Gresham, but I was in the army and I was in a special forces unit and you know, I always I was part in a part of a unit where I didn't look like I've never looked like I was in the army. I've always had long hair and a beard and very seldom wore a uniform or anything like that and did a job that I, I couldn't really talk about and didn't especially want to. And so when people would ask what I did for for a job. I used to lie and say I was a dog trainer. So when I actually became one, it was a pretty easy transition <laughs> because I'd been lying to people for years. And I remember like actually bumping into people and then they're like, oh, you know, um, uh, yeah, talk about how I'm a dog trainer. And I'd be like, oh yeah, I really am one now. Like I was, <laughs> I was, like, I was I've lying been, to you before. I've been lying to you for the last five <laughs> years. The fact that you were lying in order to get that sort of, uh, yeah. 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 So when, when I, you know, tell people, oh, I've been training dogs at the time, you know, I've been training dogs, you know, as a full-time job for about a year now. They're like, you've been telling me you're a dog trainer for five years. I was like, oh yeah, I oh, know. Actually I was in the army and I just was lying Wishful to you. Thinking. Yeah. <laughs> so, That's something I've never learned about you until now. Yeah. yeah I used yeah. to tell like down the park, you know, people would be like, you know, or, or just in you know, at the pub or whatever. And, and it was because it was something I could talk about. I was hobbyist dog trainer and I was training dogs kind of on the side. And, Did you get people flocking that. to you to ask you how to solve the Yeah. Dog? But at the time I was enjoying it. Cause yeah. I was like, I was trying stuff out it's how i learned to train dogs really i was like hey yeah try this yeah. out and it, oh no and they come back and say oh my dogs that that worked terribly i'll be like yeah. okay i'll never tell anyone that's paying me to say that yep <laughs> but anyway They're like fake it till you make it kind of thing yeah pretty much that's it right so what was your first dog grisha tell us about the dog that created memories for you what sort of breed was it and where'd you get it from like tell us about that Great question. I'm sure that gets gets a lot of good answers. So my the dog I'm thinking of is Barney. Mm -hmm. He was a really dark red 
a golden retriever and we had, so he's an intact male. He had at one point three females on the land. And so we had 21 puppies at some point, all from, we think probably Barney. Uh, although there was another dog named Eldar, who was a German shepherd who would go, come from miles away to get in a fight with Barney. <laughs> so that was a big early education and, and fighting. Anyway, so Barney also used to rescue us. This is the right, this is the kind of stuff you're asking, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we used to come rescue us. We would pretend like we were drowning out in the lake. And so then he would come out and give us his tail and like spin around <laughs> with his tail and we'd tow us back in. So That's he was cool. just all in all a really great mellow dog, unless you were another intact male. Yeah, right. One of those guys. Yeah. So when you, you got your first dog after completing your 50 book book report mm-hmm. and you, you said you got a rescue, how was that dog? Is that a dog that inspired you to then get into training because through necessity or was it that you just enjoyed training with that dog and developed down that pathway? The latter. She was a relatively easy dog. She was given up, I think, because she was digging in someone's back garden right, okay. in the yard and right relatively easy fix and she was adorable she was great with other dogs she was great with people she was seven months old she was a border collie basset hound mix okay. so just beautiful these big blue eyes and the big floppy ears but not quite so big as a basset would be and you know big bassety feet and lovely bark she barked rarely but when she did bark it was like this lovely bark and at one point I decided to teach her to bark because she hadn't been barking, which was a complete mistake. And I never recommend to people to teach their dogs to bark so that they could teach them to shut up anymore. I read that in a book and that was, that's not my, my go-to mm-hmm. anymore. Anyway, created a little bit of a monster there, but her bark at least was great. But uh, yeah, I just basically started taking classes with her and really enjoyed, I would say at the time, to be completely vulnerably honest, I loved the control that it offered. I loved, I was, let's see, probably those 2000-ish. So, you know, I was 25. And so I probably really, really enjoyed the idea that something in my life was under my control. And now as I age, I really love empowering dogs to be themselves and to I like nurturing them to have full, enjoyable lives rather than show off that I can control another animal. Mm -hmm. And so the the control that I teach is now for grooming and, you know, necessities. Yeah. So the classes that you took, what was the pathway of those classes? Was that for, say, AKC obedience type stuff or was that just sort of local dog club? Just local dog club. It was actually one of the big box stores and the, the trainer there she used kind of a mixed methods at the time she talked us into doing a prong collar, which I used for like a week and realized that actually that isn't the tool that I want to be using with her. And, but she was a, she was a strong puller. So we ended up using clicker training to work through that with her and a harness front attachment harness. It was funny though, that same trainer, she part, she was actually part of what inspired me to become a trainer because she said at some point, you really remind me of myself when I was learning how to be a trainer. And there was like this light bulb moment of, oh, I could be a trainer. And so then I started volunteering at the local shelter and, and in their dog behavior and socialization program and learning from there. And then that trainer came to one of my classes, I think 10 years later cool. and learned from me. So that was a nice full circle. Mm, yeah, that's awesome. 
And so, yeah. so that was your path, right? So that dog, no behavioral problems and you got your hands on the behavioral difficulties of dogs working at a local shelter. Right. Exactly. And then I had the, the path that a lot of dog trainers have, which is to get a dog who is very reactive. And so that was my second dog, Peanut, who is my muse basically. So Spoon is the one I described first. She's everybody's dog. Like she'll go up to anybody and say that she loves them or she did when she was alive. And she's probably still doing it now. I have no idea. Anyway, but Peanut was the kind of dog that only one person could be really connected to. And then he would gradually start trusting a little bit. But I would say he was probably seven before. I think it was about seven when I came up with Bat. And that's when I really started being able to crack his socialization shell. And then he was able to make a lot of new friends with humans. But before then, he would function around people, but he didn't like anybody. Do you know his history, like how that came to be? His history is, it was very short before me. I got him at 10 weeks from a shelter. His mother was euthanized because she had reactivity toward other dogs or aggression of some sort uh, and to people. So there's a genetic component probably, mm-hmm. or that might've been something that, that was learned from the early days. At 10 weeks old, then he would have been in the shelter when his fear, uh, his amygdala came online. So that's part of his initial phobias, probably. Mm-hmm. And I think the the whole litter was a little bit shell-shocked from, from what I gather from talking to the other ones, uh, the other folks. And uh, and then I would actually also blame a little bit of the, the way that I trained for that. So basically... What I did with him was I was new to counter conditioning and I thought you can counter condition anything. And so like the moment any experience would happen, I would be like, yay, good boy. And here's a bunch of treats. And I think what happened is that he actually never had the time to notice those stimuli. Mm. So it was like this first little glimpse of a child and then food would be in his face. And so before he had a chance to actually like look at them or smell them or engage, he was already distracted by me. Mm-hmm. And so all of that training that I put into him basically becoming this really sharp, well-trained robot made it so that he wasn't actually paying a lot of attention to the outside world. So I'm glad I didn't use corrections with him, but I definitely think I overdid it with treats as well. So there's this middle path where you can give dogs a natural space to be able to encounter the world. And that's where I try to work now. Yeah. That's great to hear mm-hmm. you talk about that because it is something that I think is whether we're talking positive only trainers or balanced trainers or whatever, that everybody knows you got to give these puppies positive experiences everywhere. Right. Mm. And that's what we talk about. And we talk about in socialization being so important. And, you know, like mostly my background is working dogs and environmental soundness is the the key thing. They can have all the drive in the world. They can have all the, you know, they can have tick all the boxes, but if they're not environmentally sound, they're not going to work. Right. That's the first test. And so everybody's always out there and it's so common. You see people, the dog see something click or, or, you know, whether they're just trickling food to the dog the whole time and it becomes this rhetoric of um, positive experiences, positive experiences, positive experience. And then it t- like it kind of turns out, I've seen so many dogs that they haven't experienced anything other than mm. the clicker and their food and they're just in drive and they never even noticed any of this stuff. They're blinkered then, through life. Yeah. And then suddenly it's a 20 week old critical periods finished mm. and you, he actually, despite having gone everywhere, he never actually experienced anything, right? Right. It's the equivalent of basically socializing your child by putting an iPhone in their hand and then taking them all around and having them meet a lot of people. While exactly. Right. So 
Exactly. Like the positive experience is great, but it, the more naturalistic you can make that positive experience, that they can learn that the, the stimuli are inherently safe rather than that they produce something that's good, that they in, you know, that those situations themselves are safe and fun. Yeah. That's what we're trying to teach them. Yeah. And just that sort of like, oh, there's a truck and I'm still alive and nothing happened. And there's a person and I'm still alive and nothing happened. And it's just actual neutral experiences and just sort of really taking it in and understanding what's happening. It's something I've spoken about a few times on the show is my own dog that I, I have now. He was a mad leash biter and, you know, his trajectory was to become a biting sport dog. So I really I didn't want to close a window that I knew that I needed open later on so I just would let him nail the leash and we'd be walking around and he'd be hammering on the leash and people say what's his environmentals like and I had to say like I genuinely have no idea I haven't seen in spite of him gone everywhere with me I haven't seen him out of drive and it was really hard I'd have to end up having to use like a like a steel cable as a leash that he just would find no value in so that he we could walk around and him be like oh I'm actually going to experience things and no notice things rather than just be in drive doing bite work the whole time we're walking around. Mm. That makes sense. And and just to be, just to make sure I'm absolutely clear, I'm totally in favor of using food to reinforce. Yeah, of course. Behavior. And I just really want to create that sort of empty space of not getting reinforcement from the handler so that the dog can experience the world. Yeah. Give them an opportunity to look around and actually take in the environment and then go, exactly. Hey, this is a good thing rather than just like you're in, you're in drive food, food, food the whole time. Exactly. Yes. That we can, we can create neutral to positive experiences without mm-hmm. needing an external reinforcer. So this dog peanut, you said his name, we're, geez, we've got some dog names going on. at the I know we've oh, had Nilla bean and we've had French fry and drumstick. And <laughs> we, we had Misha on last week and she, the list of dog names she was telling us about the dogs in her path. I had to call her out and say, Hey, <laughs> she proved it you- though. She's put them all up on the, on the forum. <laughs> yeah. I said, are you making up these names? <laughs> They're too hilarious to be real dogs. All of my dog uh, dogs are named after food. So yeah, well, these, these were, were as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But Nilla beans. Good- I just found out today. I was talking to Misha this morning, and she was showing me pictures. I said, "Oh, you put them up on the site, show people." You know, like put a face to the name sort of thing. And I said. I was laughing at Nilla Bean. I said, something, it sounds like something Kanye West would call his dog or something like that. <laughs> she goes, well, we had to call him Nilla Bean because his real name was Killer. So she oh. said, you know, because they, it just had such a negative connotation. I said, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It rhymes. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. So Peanut had these <laughs> reactivity issues and you said it was, he was seven when you came up with Bat. So, and you got him at 10 weeks old. So there's seven years of other attempts. What else did you do with him? What was the path that led you to Bat? Basically what I did with him was, first of all, lots of, of shaping and clicker training for alternate behavior. So lots of clicking for looking at the thing or clicking and looking or looking away but generally, you know, trying to create other things he could do besides for, for bark at people and also just generally keeping him safe. So making sure that he didn't get any worse by not having people reach in and harass him or you know, any, anything that he couldn't handle. I'd made sure not to do those things. What really made the, the switch in my mind away from just using treats as a reinforcer was the constructional aggression treatment. There's a cat seminar. And the idea of that at the time was basically that you would tether the dog, have the dog have, you know, someone else approach and then look for a cutoff signal and then they would go away. So they were using negative reinforcement, using space as the the reinforcer. Mm -hmm. 
And I didn't really like, so I tried it out that way and I didn't really like tethering him. So immediately I changed that and I just started making more and more changes over time. Uh, but that protocol with the, the changes that I put in, so eventually Peanut was able to be a therapy dog to visit folks who were not children running around doing crazy things, but so folks, older folks who were sitting relatively still enjoying him, savoring him. He really, really liked that. And so that was a shift that he was able to make in a couple of months after having years of this other kind of training. Mm-hmm. And now certainly with the, the other stuff, it was, he was able to function and walk right past people and look okay as long as he was actually in working mode. Mm-hmm. So the moment that he wasn't officially paying attention to me, then he, he wasn't, he was now barking and embarrassing me. And I didn't necessarily need to be giving him food all the time. We'd gotten to the stage where it was just for praise or whatever else. But it's still that that reinforcer of my attention and noticing the small cues was still required. Mm. And so then that's where Bat eventually came in. As I realized, okay, I can move him around. I can actually have the trigger be the one that's stationary and, and change things up. And then I finally realized that it wasn't negative reinforcement really at all. It was this opportunity to notice that he was safe and mm-hmm. to be able to move around in space. And, and while there might be some naturally occurring reinforcement, negative reinforcement, it's not in that very standard way of applying a stimulus and then removing it when he would do what I want. Sure. I'd love to talk to you more in detail about that because it might be listeners that don't you aren't familiar with it. And we could, if you could give us the elevator pitch on like, you know, what it looks like and and how it actually functions. But if it's all right, I'd like to take a step back. And, you know, you said that with your first dog spoon, was it the first one? That's not a food, but it it helps get the food to the mouth. (laughs) (laughs) So with spoon, you said when you went to these classes, you initially was a prong collar on the dog, right? And that you pretty quickly realized you didn't want to do that. And you did other things. And right. Yeah, I suppose plus R trainer, the right way to refer to that. Yeah, the part of the industry that you would fall into. When did that come? How did that come to be? Like, what was it and what was the step? Because I think I started myself out as force free trainer. Like, that was, you know, from the literature that I'd read and sort of decided, like, that's how I want to go. And it wasn't until I found some problems that I, I thought I could address in a better way or a different way. I'd like to hear if you can, what was it about you that then went, no, this is the the direction I want to go into. So definitely from all of the reading, just knowing that there was a possibility that I could actually choose between all of these different techniques and that there's this, this one that matches my life philosophy of doing no harm that I'm always kind of asking in all of my behavior, does this help or harm, right? Does this help someone does harm them? And so I'm always going to be looking for the one that's the most helpful and the least harmful in everything that I do, whether it's dogs or conversation. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that there was an option made me gravitate in that direction. And then when I sort of banged my head against the wall for a while, it was still functional. Like I could, it wasn't as long as I was still, you know, actively in training mode, he was fine. So sort of, you could say it's working. And so it wasn't enough to, to cause me to say, okay, well, maybe I'll use a more aversive tool. And again, with clients, same thing. And then I, but I was still wanting more, something that was a little bit more effective. But I think for me, the, the fact that it really matched my philosophy kept me in that camp long enough until I was able to come up with something more creative that 
that still falls under that rather than say, okay, I'm going to look for whatever tool that that's out there that works. It's more for me of saying, okay, I, I don't go that path. So what is there now, now that I'm not looking in that direction, what else can I see that nobody else has seen? Mm-hmm. And so that I'm glad that I, I went that route because I might not have ever come up with that otherwise. Yeah. And so that it's one of those things that a lot of people are doing sort of intuitively and that maybe they don't know you or maybe they don't know bat, but they're doing something similar to that, right? It might not be like as prescribed by you, but it's proximity to triggers and reinforcement. And, and I'd love to hear how that came to be. Like you said that you were trying other things before and it was that you had, or just say cat, it was that your dog is tethered and that the trigger is what is mobile. And we're in mm-hmm. bat, you're sort of going the other way around and you're working proximity to, 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 to the trigger what makes it different from, you know, just why is it not just desensitized counter condition? What is the different thing? And if you can define desensitized counter condition from your perspective and tell us why bad is a different thing to that. Okay. There's a lot of questions in there. Yeah. And, and, and like uh, from just to understand like our audience, we either fly over the heads of a lot of people or we have a, a very well educated on terminology audience. So don't like either leave people behind. <laughs> yeah. So don't be afraid to use the terminology that you. Yeah. It should you inspire would. them to raise their standards yeah, if, and learn more anyway. Yeah. If they have to look something up, I that's on them. Words, but I will also use them in context. Sure. Perfect. All right. So let's see. For First of all, I'll give a, a like a 30,000 mm-hmm. foot view or 30, I don't know, a 10,000 meter view <laughs> of that. So essentially with that, the idea is, is that you, I create situations in which the dogs can be curious. So it's the curiosity that makes that emotional shift where if they're in a situation where they think I survived, you still, then they're still approaching the next situation from, okay, is this one also dangerous? And so I'm looking to create scenarios that are, that feel safe to the animal that are just at the edge where they can be a little bit curious about, am I safe or not? And then the question gets answered in this scenario. So usually then there's a dog or a person that's, that's our helper. We're wandering around on a long leash. So the dog feels as free as possible. And then the human's job is just to make sure the dog doesn't get so close that the decision gets, that they get triggered into reactivity instead of uh, feeling safe and and curious. Mm -hmm. And so we're helping them sort of surf that edge and so the reinforcer isn't coming very often, very frequently. It's not coming from the handler. It's coming from the environment. It's coming from the other dog and the way that they interact. It's coming from the fact that the student dog moves away and can go sniff the ground. So they're learning, aha, my behavior here worked, right? They're not thinking in words, but they turn their head away. They sniff the ground and they get the consequence that's natural in that environment. Mm-hmm. And so then over time, we're closer and closer. And so... That is is a technique that is a desensitization protocol. That so the scientific phrase of, of desensitization it is that we have in dog training something that we call systematic desensitization and counter conditioning, which are two pieces. So systematic desensitization is a term that was borrowed from psychology. Mm. There's a, a, a there is a technique in psychology called systematic desensitization that is. This, this very gradual approach to the to the stimulus where the, the human would say, okay, this is the most scary, this is the least scary. They make a rank order and they 
they approach step by step from there. Also part of that protocol is a relaxation exercise, a breathing exercise or something else that then they calm down. And so uh, counter conditioning is both a procedure and a process uh, procedure, meaning that the, you, we can do it to sort of provide a structure or it's the process of changing the connection from sort of good to bad, essentially. So mm-hmm. associating a new stimulus to something that was, they were scared about before or a new stimulus is something that they thought was safe before. So the technique that we call systematic desensitization is more distant from the actual original term than bad is. So bad is basically much more true to what we see in the research for systematic desensitization. There's a relaxation component. The um, person, the learner, is the one who is choosing whether they feel safe or not. They can stop. They They have control over the procedure versus when we're doing it with dogs, the systematic desensitization and counter conditioning, it's usually the trainer surprising the dog with some stimulus, giving a bunch of treats, and then taking the stimulus away. So it's a completely disempowering procedure mm-hmm. versus the one that was done in psychology, which is more empowering. And that was part of why it works, mm-hmm. is the empowerment aspect. So... I don't know if I answered all of your questions. Yeah, sort of. And so now I'm curious about something. When you talk about you present the stimulus, you're at a distance where the dog is curious about it, but not like, I guess that's a one of the most critical parts about bat, right? Is that you stay sub-threshold. You, once you go over threshold, right. now you're into, you are essentially, by removing the dog from the situation, that is probably the removal of negative reinforcement being the presence of the trigger. You remove the dogs from the situation and perhaps you're going to strengthen the behavior that the exact behavior you're trying to get rid of. Right. So it's critically important that you stay below threshold. The sooner you interrupt it, the better though. So there is, so basically if you look at um, an aggressive sequence, then there are precursor behaviors. There are behaviors that, that are at the beginning, like mm-hmm. staring, yeah. freezing, whatever else. And so if you manage to reinforce a precursor behavior, you actually get less aggression. So Sure, sure, because you've shown that works. You notice when you call them away, the better. Right, yeah. cool. And so when you said there, then when the dog offers another behavior, sniffs the ground, whatever, that's the moment of reinforcement where you mark and then you don't mark there, right? So yeah, I don't mark. Fix yeah. me on so, that. Yeah, so there were two versions of that. So originally we did do lots of, what I now call mark and move, which we will do some of that in our current training, but essentially the core of that is that it's just naturally being reinforced. Okay. So the human's job really is just to follow the dog around as long as the dog is coping and handling it on his own. And otherwise we're just making sure they don't go too close. That's our primary job is to be a parachute now. Right. So there's not a marker because there's not an external reinforcer either. Okay, it's cool. It's the naturally reinforcer. It almost sounds like you're working in the vacuum of conflict, like when the dog's at those two opposing forces that you're sort of working within the bubble that exists between the two of them. Would that be? I like that. Yes. Is that an official term? Yeah, if you say that yeah, again, you now. have to give Glenn a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you make that up? It's just something that I've been thinking about for a lot of time because – People like to say it is this or it is this, you know, like they'll give things terms like it has to be one or the other. But there's, you know, there there is often when people are thinking about terms, there's something that exists in the middle of it as well. Like it's almost like a, a neutral zone or a bubble. 
And, you know, like I've been thinking about this for a lot of years, you know, when I read your book and I've read other people's discussion on um, systematic desensitization, counter conditioning, and, you know, their relative explanation of it. There's a lot of times where people are talking about that, but they're not mentioning it. Like they don't talk about the neutral zone in between. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So it, it is sort of that the the choice point you, is not mm. really a point. It's sort of the the bubble around it. I like that. Yes. Thank and, you. and I mean, I do have colors on my chart, right? And so mm. it'd be sort of one of those, but I like that, the vacuum. If you say that out loud, you have to give Glenn a dollar every okay, time. Okay. I'm just going to put tape over my mouth. <laughs> and positive first. It's going to be an Australian dollar because I've got some extras. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Cool. Okay. So the difference though, that's bat is what I said, Mark, and move back and give the dog distance out of the, the place. Is that correct? And then right. so-, so if you're ever like, so everyday work when I'm, when I'm out on a walk with dogs, or for example, if I'm doing bat in New York city, then I'm going to be doing a di- slightly different variation called mark and move mm. where yeah. we are not in a, in a conflict free space, right? The dog is likely to choose to react instead if I just waited. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to choose a moment where the dog is successful, whatever the largest amount of behavior is I can get. So it might be, I, it might be just looking at the trigger. It might be looking away, might be turning toward me, but then I will mark move further away and then give a treat. Right. Okay. So that's similar, more similar to the old version of bat. We are the one major difference is that I'm not leading the dog toward the trigger, which is still important. So I think a lot of people really want to create behavior change. And so they, they bring the dog up to that point where they have to choose rather than letting the dog actually meander their way closer to the the trigger. Yeah. I think that's one of the critical things you just mentioned there is everybody with bat style treatment of dogs and addressing, you know, aggression, reactivity, whatever is the people fuck it up. They go like they push too close. And that's kind of always been the sticking point in those sorts of things that's why I like to do this kind of stuff, a similar sort of thing, but on a flexi line. So the dog has quite a lot of space, right? And they, it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be a flexi, but I use a flexi, like, but a, yeah. or a long lead or whatever. So the dog can start. I always use a long lead. Absolutely. It's, mm. it's so important. Yeah. And I have a new technique for working with long leads that I'm super excited about. And I can't tell you what it is because I have a webinar about it and it's Give us a, a hint. waiting for a world reveal. But just suffice it to say that small people can be more effective in controlling bigger dogs with this technique, whether it's a long line or a short one, but especially with long lines. Okay. Sounds like BJJ for dogs. (laughs) Say again? It sounds like BJJ for dogs. I don't know what that is. Well, Brazilian (laughs) Jiu-Jitsu, the whole philosophy around Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is that you don't have to be a strong, powerful person to be able to control the actions of a larger, powerful person. Exactly. Yes. We're using physics in a, in a similar sort of way. And yeah, I'm super excited. And it's, it was something that, I mean, it's, it's kind of like leash walking is one of the the big differences, right. Between the more aversive style and positive, right. There are definitely, there's always that argument of, well, what if you have an older woman and a big dog, what are you going to use? And I don't like prong collars. I don't like head collars. I don't like tools that are going to put the dogs in an unpleasant situation because of the the connection that they can make with that emotionally, as well as just, that's not how I roll. And so this is, makes it so that we can actually bring the dogs slowly to a stop. So it's softer on our body and on theirs. 
and even more so than the tools that I already use. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited. Well, I'm excited to see what that is. Um, so going back to what I was sort of going out there now, you're of course correctly done. Bat is sub threshold, right? And that the dog doesn't right. blow up, but the, the, the human is always the problem causer in this space. And we want to fix this today. I want this problem fixed today. I've got to go to Thanksgiving dinner next week and I need, I need my dog to be re- you know, good with my parents' dog next week. Right. So they of course go over threshold. Right. And What's the prescription when that happens? Aside from don't do it, right? Aside from don't do it, when it, and I know you said that, you know, minimize that time under tension, that it's the earliest signal, but imagine the general pet owner doesn't read any of those signs and that they are in the, the, the big blow up. The dog is giving its best and most effective display of aggression at the end of the line. What's the prescription at that point? So at that point, I'm still not going to consider that to be a really teachable moment besides for how we can relax as quickly as possible. And so the human's job is to stay calm and breathe and remember that, that they, they're strong enough to hold this dog. It's nothing is going to happen and that they can just either hold still while the other people leave or walk the dog away. That's like in the moment, right? Mm -hmm. So in the moment, you know, we have a couple of choices, right? So we could try to punish the behavior to, in, in the hopes that it would make a difference. Um, but I don't want people doing that because, A, there's for me, I see more conflict than between the person and the dog. It's very reinforcing to the person because temporarily the dog is sort of shut down. And so it looks often like it's working, but you're not making a, a positive association. You're not, we're not going to be any more below threshold next time in terms of that curiosity in my experience. So yeah, basically I'm looking for them to just move away and try again. And usually then what I do is I stalk the other person after. So if it's like the dog exploded, we, you know, get the dogs apart. So I move, you know, the, the client would move away from the random stranger that they got too close to. And then now they can follow from a distance, mm-hmm. assuming it's not a dark night. And, and one of them is, you know, can't like scare people by stalking them, but sure. help the dog to sort of make a different choice if they can do it from a different distance. Yeah, sure. So, Grisha, being a, a mathematician and somebody who, you know, looks at the numbers and the statistics and so forth, if people are doing your system correctly, do you have sort of like the statistics behind it on how well it's working and what, what you're achieving with, with your method? I'm always interested in that, no matter the, the training style of anybody. Like, I like to know, like, what are you actually seeing in your in your community when people are applying this? Uh, you know, I like watching Pat's style of training, you know, the Nipopo-esque style and everything like that. What's the follow-up that people will actually do? Mm-hmm. Well, I would really love to have those numbers. Mm. Uh, I'm not a statistician. I'm a mathematician. I know that, yes, but I, I know... <laughs> Mathematicians <laughs> like to like to play with numbers and like to like to. They do, but not all of us. Okay, um, okay. So, but I, I I'm a scientist and I love I want that data mm. right, and so I don't have an answer for you in a in a actual number way. Sorry, it's hard um, because I think especially with a specific technique like yours, you envision it being a particular way, and you teach that all around the world, and you've got a book on it, and that mm. but how people apply it is 
maybe not exactly as you would want. And I feel that deeply in my mm. soul because I see a lot of people, you know, people will tag me on Instagram. Hey, I'm doing this thing that I learned from Pat. And I've never heard of them. <laughs> I'd never heard of them. And they tag me and, and I'm like, oh my God, like this is, I'm going to have to yeah. undo so many things. Mm. And, and they're, they're doing their best work and, you know, they're not being an asshole or whatever. And, and you don't want to be like, uh, actually, that's not what I said. Please don't do that. Actually, you're going to cause food aggression doing that. Please stop. But you also, you know, like, so I, I get it. It's so hard to put the numbers on, you know, with the box feeding thing that I've not invented, but sort of pushed to a lot of people to try and do, there would for sure be thousands of people by now who have done that. And, and hundreds of them had amazing success and maybe some of them made their dogs so much worse. And I have no idea, right? Because you, you can't, it's, it's you can't interpretation, be there. right? Yeah. And you can't mm. be there for everybody and mm. your best efforts. You can only put out the information. You can't hold literally when it's fine when you're, doing in-home behavior mod and you can hold someone's hand through the entire process. That's fine. But when you're teaching on a world, right. a world stage and there's people all over the planet doing your stuff and it's not until you see some video on Instagram somewhere and you don't even know, you're like, Oh my God, what's happening. That's my worry. Yeah. That's the thing is, is it's a complex technique. It's not just do this. Like when you see a dog, give a treat, right. There's, there's a nuance to it. There's an art to it. Mm. And I think also a lot of people say, like, when they hear it, they think, oh, that's similar enough to this other technique that I do. And they actually just, their brain just closes off on the parts that are really important. Yeah. And so there's that. But I also think, or I know that when I've talked to various researchers about doing it and they're, they're like, well, can we only do this one part? I'm like, not really. Like it's, you kind of have to do the whole package. And so it's very hard to really quantify the, what the technique is in that way. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing. Uh, but I, I still, I still have full intention of making that happen at some point. Mm. So we'll see. But so just the general answer to your question is that it's, it's been very effective. It's, I know that it's reached at least I actually no is not the right word. I've calculated that it has reached probably at least a hundred thousand people, a hundred thousand dogs. And that I know that I get emails every single day of people saying that, you know, they're super happy and this is what it's doing for their dog. And, oh my God, I got to go to, you know, Thanksgiving with, with my dog and whatever else. And so it's very heartening to me. Yeah. It, it does make such a difference to people. I'm a firm believer in this day and age and the older I get that whatever the method as long as it achieves a great objective that it saves the dog from being euthanized, it keeps the dog in the house, the dog and the family are all happy and living their best life together. If you can achieve those outcomes, no matter what you're doing, you're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. People can always fine tune if the dog is still alive. Yes, yes. yes. Exactly. <laughs> so I've got two more questions and the answer to the first will determine whether I ask the second. What is it do you think about that, that is different to what you were doing with peanut before? Cause you said that he would, you know, he would tolerate and in working mode, he would accept the presence of other people. And then under bat is a therapy dog and cuddles people. Right. And selective people. Well, no, no, you said therapy dogs in, goes to hospitals and is happy, like jumping onto people's laps and being around them. So what is it? What, what is the key difference that created that where he's gone from, I accept this because I know that I'm safe, but I don't like it to the point where he's like, no, I do like this now. This is something that I enjoy. Mm -hmm. 
so with the um with people he actually so the with the original version of that kind of cat like essentially was speaking of cats there's jingle of mine in the background <laughs> the, um that was where he would sort of selectively approach older people and then with bat 2.0 when we evolved it into that i used children as his sort of test triggered um, and so then he was friendly to everyone and the change was really the empowerment and working at in the sweet spot. So what I thought was his threshold was way, way, way closer than his true threshold. Mm -hmm. So when I switched into bat 2.0, when I really gave him the choice of, do you want to approach or not? We actually, I found that we had to be a hundred feet or more away from the trigger versus I thought we were working in their like five to 10 foot range. Mm -hmm. And so then we were able to make progress really quickly because we were working at a level where he was curious and he was empowered with his own behavior versus sort of coping. Mm -hmm. And just as a, an analogy, the basically when, when COVID hit, a lot of people realized how much they had been coping with how busy their lives were yep. and how much more we were doing than we actually needed to be doing in our lives. I'm actually much busier now because I teach online but there's this this sense of we do things and we get in this habit and we can succeed in it ish but given a true choice we would do something very different mm -hmm. and so he was able to work in those situations but would he actually have chosen them no and so then once he was given that power by me not cueing him me not leading forward me being very very concern or very aware of where is my body in relation to him and where am I leading him versus is he is he leading this dance? And when I allowed that to happen, that's what made the difference. Mm. That's interesting. The words true choice. What role, if any, do you think that the, the food plays in that with there being no food, like as a reinforcer in the 2.0, do you think that was sort of the proximity thing where he's like, okay, I'll, like, you know, everything is relative. I'll accept the difficult presence of the people I don't like to accept this food. And do you think that's what closed him in and put him in a position where he was willing to endure discomfort beyond what you which beyond what he would absent the food, do you yeah, think that played a big role? I think that was a piece of it uh, because for him, it wasn't carrot and stick. I didn't punish him for staying further away or, or doing any, you know, he never got punishment. So for him, the controlling consequence for me was with food. But I would say if he was a different animal or different household where there's a controlling force in, in terms of punishment or reinforcement, it would be those things. But his, basically we sort of, uh, all beings, right, are looking at what are the consequences in my environment? Mm -hmm. What do I need to work to do or avoid, right? Of course, we're more complex than that. But in that environment, when food was a possibility, then he was able to say, okay, yep, now I will do this. And maybe because he felt safe, because it was a known scenario, but it, my guess is it was also just over-motivating him to do something that was ultimately not in his best interest as a being. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, totally. So once he learned that like, oh, humans can like do the scritchy thing, it was like, oh my God, like you can all do this. It just like his mind was blown. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. So that feeds into my next question is in all the techniques, you know, we kind of have our limitations on everything. And where do you think that kind of finishes for a dog? Where you, like, is it a hundred percent successful if done by you exactly the way that you would expect? Because I'm thinking of 
I'll tell you the exact circumstance I'm thinking of is I like to deal in working dogs, right? And sometimes I've had people who have a pet dog that is what they say, you know, he doesn't like people. And the, you know, when you Google that and you look it up and it, the, the rhetoric is always that it's a fear-based thing and, and that kind of stuff. Whereas I know for sure that there are dogs that see people as prey and they want to fucking bite them. And it's not fear at all. We've genetically selected them for that mm. over decades. Mm. And every now and again, you get one of those into a fluffy little white body, right? And so sometimes that happens. And have you ever seen back gone wrong where someone really does have that dog that's like, no, I'm not scared of that person. I want to bite them because that will be fun for me. And they just kind of like go, oh, you're slowly leading me in. <laughs> and I'll, I'll act cool because I've seen that. And I had to say, like, they weren't doing bat, but a similar sort of thing, right? Like a, a desensitized counter condition. I was kind of like, hey, this is never going to happen. This dog is a is a working dog in the wrong body. He wants to bite people because it's fun, not because he's afraid of them in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. And I'll I'll play. So the answer is yes. I I feel like that would work in that situation. But I'm also going to play devil's advocate and say and point out that it could still have been fear, right? It could still have been an animal saying, "All right, I will." I will perform in this situation because it's worthwhile to me. And mm -hmm. oh my God, now I'm panicking and freak out. Mm -hmm. PTSD is comes in all sorts of different forms. So anyway, it could be that. But regardless, I find, so I would switch the, the protocol around a little bit with that if I felt like predation was at play. Um, certainly if it's dogs and cats, then I'm not going to do the sort of straight meandering concept. Mm -hmm. I'm also going to be employing um, an alternate reinforcer. So a reinforcer that's similar to what they're wanting to do with the animal that has the same function. Mm -hmm. So if I'm looking at a dog who wants to chase, then when I do mark and move, then chasing a toy is going to be the reinforcer. So using the same drive or, or interest or function, mm -hmm. um, but rather, you know, obviously on something that's more safe. Yeah, I think but that's... I still will do that meandering style of that as well because it lowers arousal. And when arousal is lower, they make different choices. Mm. And so when they can rehearse at low arousal, then eventually in high arousal, they'll still make those good choices. It just takes a little bit more time if they practice it, you know, with rehearsal and there's no fear involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love hearing you talk about rewarding the appropriate mindset. I think that's something that, you know, I've seen people, particularly in working dogs, right? Like we sometimes bring out drive, might, you know, see people, someone back tie the dog, right? Or, or they, someone else holds the leash, the handler cracks a whip a couple of times, we'll bring the dog into a frenzy, then we call the dog into heel. And because of the excitement that came into them through the, the cracking whip, they heal with like power and intensity, and then they click and give them food. And it's like, hey, that's a disaster waiting to happen, right? Because you wow. you put that dog in. Yeah. And you see this quite a bit. And mm. you say, hey, you just put that dog into the mindset of I get to bite something. You asked him to heal. He did the work that you've asked for. And then you gave him food. Like that is not a reinforcer. Like, oh, no, thanks for the food. Like yeah. that's nothing. But I'll take yeah. the biting now, please. And I think that that's one of the things that gets sort of overlooked when we're dealing this sort of behavior modification, when you're looking at a dog that exactly, as you say, the example of chasing a cat, like that's hardcore prey. And I like your food, I might take it. I might, because I know I have to, or maybe I'm a hungry dog or whatever, right? There's reasons why the dog will take it, but it's like, that's not actually reinforcing. That's not a, that's not an appropriate surrogate for what the dog wants to do there. Right? Well, like hence that's why so many handlers got redirected on. Yeah. 
and I think it's it's the the like the void of that emotion. Like that has to go somewhere, right? And often with dogs that I've seen, they especially that example with the whip and re, you know reinforcing with food, they can become what looks like aggressive because they've just got a lot of pent up energy that's got nowhere to go, and they're probably not aggressive, but it's just that they're like sometimes someone's getting bitten, and if they're a dog that's been trained to bite, then they sort of display that catching lightning in a bottle. Yeah, but then I think I think I see sometimes as well, like with pet dog stuff and the dogs haven't been trained to bite so much, is there a lot of then in the treatment of these kind of things, okay, you can't chase that down the street, whatever, and I'm reinforcing with food. And that sort of goes ahead and we we are able to modify the dog's behavior in that time. But then the, the leak over is they start destroying the couch, right? Like they start like, mm. because that I have to catch something, bite it and destroy it. Like you presented the stimulus to me. I'm in that level of arousal. I played your silly game. I got the food. And now when I go home, something's getting wrecked. The right? energy's like, still there. Yeah. Like mm. that has right. to go somewhere. Yeah. And that key is really to be, again, working at the right level of arousal. So working working in the way that you want to continue, right? I, another name for bat is boring aggression treatment. <laughs> so you want dogs to basically be boring. Like when they see a child or another dog that they're not like, oh my God, I need to rip its throat out. But like, hey, what's going on? Sniff, you know, the boring stuff that doesn't like bring a bunch of people running. Mm-hmm. So that's my goal is to really get people to be aware of their, their dog's behavior. And I think that's one thing that bat really does well because we are, because of the time when people are just following their dogs and reading them and learning what does my dog want in this situation and thinking from that need-based approach there, we're actually teaching two-way communication. So we're teaching them to really be, to be much more mindful of their dogs. Mm. And I think it's, it's helpful for the people as well. I know it is uh, actually, and there's a there's a prison program that uses bat uh, in Washington State, and I got to go visit that, and it was amazing. Like it just uh, it's one of the highlights of my whole life is going and visiting these like 15, 20 guys in there that were using bat to rehabilitate dogs with aggression problems, and and of course they're men with aggression problems, right? <laughs> and so they really. I mean, a lot of them just like were talking to me and they just broke down and talked about how like this made everything that they did make sense. Mm. Like it's, they now they get it and they understand why like they did felt like they didn't have a choice. And now they can use these skills around other people within the prison to not cause fights. And like, it's just, you know, it was great. It felt really good. That's awesome. Mm, That is. I feel like for human mental health, dog training is so good and, you know, I've got so many examples of these people I know personally and, and people who are really close to me as well that, you know, when we when someone has a behavioral problem themselves, right, addressing that directly and explaining to them, hey, the reason you're doing this can trigger them in a lot of ways that can be uncomfortable and they can mm. sort of want to turn off from the conversation. But training them to train a dog, you get to really indirectly teach them about their own issues of conflict and that sort of stuff. And, and it, we don't have to have that it's indirect, right? Because I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about this dog and, and like, it's got nothing to do with you, but if you happen to. Internalize it in their own way later. Yeah. Yeah. 
if that shoe pseudo fits, psychology. Yeah, if that shoe fits, lace it up and wear mm. it to the ball. But right now we're just talking about this dog that's in front of us and, you know, I don't have to address you directly. Are you that little dog, Pat? Are you? <laughs> Are you? <laughs> but I think it's great. Well, I, I think that's great. actually why I ended up coming up with the, the How to Human course on my website is mm. just because we are working with humans so frequently. And if we, we have sort of like this border collie in our heads that needs training, and so we, if we apply a lot of the same techniques to ourselves, uh, it works great. So unlike Glenn's grandmother, who, who's a big fan of shame. Um, <laughs> she was. She was a, she was a shamer. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Then we can use other tools to change habits, right? So we can set up contingencies and, and be really aware of what happens next and what's leading us to this and what need does it meet and yeah. find a replacement behavior or a substitute and I actually read a really good book on that, Grisha. It's Brianne Brown's book. It's based in vulnerability, but she researched shame quite a fair bit. I feature her in my my class. I mm. love her work. Yeah, her work's brilliant. And I, I really enjoyed her book. It triggered me a little bit. I was listening to it on the way to a meeting and I actually had to have a little bit of a time out while I was listening to it because there were some things that she was talking about, which were scratching some uh, itches and uh, yeah. But I do recommend the book. I think it was brilliant and uh, I enjoyed it. I've actually started re-listening to points of it because I'm trying to practice elements of it in my own life, you know, just to change things that people like my grandmother created in me and things that I'm aware of. And I'm trying to dispel some of those some of those habits that she created in me because I can see them and I can hear them in conversations when they're coming up. Yeah. And shame is one of those things that we all have mm. and that we're not supposed to talk about. It's refreshing to hear it come up in this. It's a tricky um, one because I think that it's an important thing. Like you don't want to be completely shameless, right? Like because Well, she talks about guilt versus shame. And right. she says she says the difference is you can make someone feel guilty for not doing what they should have done, but shaming them will you know, and it's kind of like um examples where people have been pulled up on something and they've been able to deal with it, but if you shame them they can hate you forever for it, you know, mm -hmm. like and it can have such a powerful connotation over it. Whereas like saying to them, you, you know, you should feel guilty for this versus you should be ashamed of yourself for doing that. Like it was really. A little bit different. It's yeah. It's, so guilt is more, uh, it's a consequence of behavior yeah. and shame is that there's something wrong with you. Mm. Uh, that split is where it made a lot of sense. It's, it's kind of like what you said on the show last week where you said your mate isn't depression. He has depression, mm. you know, like that, that sort of awareness of, yeah. of what's happening to you at the time. It's interesting. It really is. It's a fascinating approach in the way she lays it out. Like I said, I recommend it. It's Brian Brown's. Uh, I think the, the book is Renee. called. Brene, yeah, Brene Brown. I think the book is called Vulnerability or something like that, but I'll find out. I'll list it. It's great. It's a good read. Yeah, right. Excellent. Yeah, she, I think she has, It's I think, like five books now, and Rising Strong is my favorite of hers. Mm. But, yeah, she has also, also The Gifts of Imperfection might have been the one you mentioned. One thing that came up for me while you were talking is that I think that I have this personal philosophy or personal theory that we train dogs very similarly to how we treat our inner child. Mm, yeah. Keep talking. Yeah. <laughs> so I just think that as we, yeah, that, that it's, it's not just important in terms of how we treat dogs, that, that we really are aware of all of our techniques at all times and continue continually learning and changing them. Mm. But for example, when I used to do a lot of controlling of animals, early on, that was because that was what I was doing with my inner child. And now as I learn more about 
okay, it's, it's all right to have flaws. Like we make choices that are not awesome and we deal with them and, and we find natural consequences and we get better that now I can, I can allow similar in a similar way that I can allow dogs to be more real. I can allow myself to be more real and more authentic and I don't have to punish myself or shame myself similarly to um, that applies to dogs as well. So, and with dogs, we might not be shaming them, but sort of the, the aggression that we bring to them for during a correction, for example, can often be the same way that we deal with ourselves when we've made a mistake. Mm. And by learning in both in one arena, it actually starts to influence the other. That's my mm. thought. I like that. So, yeah. So think about it. Report back to me how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, that concept of accepting dogs and their imperfections is, it's one of the things that I've kind of gone full circle on in my career. Like I certainly would think that you'd see a dog doing something quirky and be like, oh yeah, it's just who he is. Mm. And then it's come up quite a lot, you know, in the last couple of months, but I think that young enthusiastic dog trainers just get stuck in this operant model and whether they're, whether they're in the force free community or balance, whatever, doesn't matter. You just get this idea of like, no, I can control all behaviors. Like I, I, I've got. And my partner and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. And my mate Skinner has like solved this puzzle completely and like, I can just reinforce things and make, make them happen more often. And, and yeah. And I can punish and I can get rid of behaviors and I'll, I'll, I'll turn you into whatever I want you to be. And it's just not fucking true. <laughs> like no, it's it's just, and, and consequences matter, right? It's like I can make a dog who is complete addict do exactly what I want. Or I can, you know, or if I were to use punishment, I can make them be afraid and use, do exactly what I want. But if I actually look at the needs that that animal has, sorry, I think I totally interrupted you. No, you're right. Um, but anyway, so if I, yeah, if I look at the, what the needs are that that animal has, like, meeting those needs in ways that, that work for me, like finding solutions that, that the dog can do something that works for him and works for me. To me, that's like, that's the best dog training because it's really just, it's a good, it's good relationship skills. I think you're spot on now. I'm thinking about it even more that we, the way you train dogs really is a reflection of the way you're in a child. Certainly I know myself, this is one of the reasons why I sort of train in the way that I do where I'm happy to give feedback of a negative fashion to a dog because for me, I frustrate easily. And if I have a, if I have a coach that's watching me make mistakes over and over and over and doesn't help me get it right, like that pisses me off, right? Like I get to that point where I'm like, Hey man, I can accept the correction here. Push me in the right direction because I'm totally okay with that. Put like, and it's not that I'm going to, you know, I, I want feedback as to right right and wrong. Don't make me try the wrong thing a hundred times. And I think that's why that resonates with me. And I'm totally like my ethics align me that way. I'm not cranking dogs to death, but I'm happy to go like, Hey man, that's the wrong answer. Find the right answer. And I think sometimes certainly the way that I would produce that and with the dogs that I like to work with, they go like, cool, I'm glad that you shut that door on me. I'm I'm ready for the, like, let's explore this one more. And I think Mm -hmm. that the way that uh, that's an interesting concept that that is a reflection of how you treat mm-hmm. your own inner child. I think that's an interesting. I want to explore that a bit more. Mm. Yeah. And I, th- I think that ripping on that a little bit. So in terms of shutting the door, I totally agree. I don't, I also don't want someone just being like only shaping me, right? Like tell me that this isn't working. And now of course we have the human languaging, right? So that's, that's helpful. But I certainly with dogs, I have an all done cue of like, that's not going to lead to a reinforcer to try something else. 
I wouldn't necessarily be like apply something painful to say or startling to say like, nope, not that. But I absolutely would change the environment so that they're not like pounding their head against the wall, like continue to try. Mm. I think that clear communication is so, so important. Yeah. I've got a good example of that. The people that own the company that I work for, like I'm the most senior person apart from them and they give me like such a loose leash in this company. It's amazing. Like almost like it's my own to do and craft what I want. We get along great and we're best friends. We're family. We have such a great relationship, such a loving, close relationship between all of us. But we have some very intense conversations sometimes. And as I've said to them, you know, don't take anything that I'm saying personally or anything like that because you didn't employ me to be a yes man. Because if you did, I'm the most dangerous person in your company and I'll bring you to ruin. And I said, you know, like you have to understand that when I tell you something, I'm telling you because I do care about you and I do appreciate you guys so much that I don't want you just to surround yourself with people that just say, yeah, yeah, whatever you want, I'll do it. That's a terrible thing. And I think that's a terrible thing to be in a relationship like that, a partnership, Mm -hmm. have a dog, you know, like a dog relationship as well. It's just such a toxic, unfortunate relationship when people are like that. Pat and I have very good conversations sometimes. We're great friends. Like I I absolutely adore him and love him. You know, he's family to me as well. No, it's true. It's true. But the thing is, (laughs) You know, there's been times where I've said things on the show or, you know, like we've we've gone to have a conversation and Pat will say, oh, don't say that, man. That's not right. And some people are afraid to say that to me because, you know, like they've known me for a long time or anything. I think, oh, you know, I shouldn't say that to him because he's very senior or he's done this or that. But he, he'll say it straight away. And they're things that I really appreciate about him because I know that I've got a true friend, you know, somebody who – will stop me from making an ass of myself or saying something that I regret later. You know, like they're things that I really appreciate in people. I know that that somebody who's like that has got my back. And I kind of like to try and think of myself as that kind of friend to other people as well. And I think that's really important in a dog relationship. Like I, I like to have that relationship with my dogs as well. And it's not that I always get it right or I'm perfect or, you know, my dogs are better than anyone. I'm not and they aren't, you know, like I still make mistakes and I still learn and I still love having the vulnerability to sit down and, and watch what other people are doing and think, man, you know, that person is on point, you know, what they're saying and what they're doing. I could really adapt that into my own lifestyle. And to backtrack, even further about that when you first joined us on the show you were talking about when you came to the iscp conference and Mm. you found that you're a little nervous about it how you would be received and how you felt and i find that you know i kind of find that a little unfortunate that you felt that way because i i felt the same way when i've gone to plus r conferences and so forth and people have kind of looked at me and thought what's that person doing here you know like he doesn't mention that as well yeah that a lot of people came up to me and said thank you for being here because i'm too ashamed to go to or like i can't go to one of those other conferences that you might be speaking at because people are mean to me yeah and i think that's like i the this sort of split of people who are positive reinforcement trainers who are also really mean to humans. Mm. Like boggles the <laughs> It mind. boggles. It does, doesn't it? Like, we're so, you know, like I, I've got a bunch of students here at the moment and my other trainer, Kana, is doing the sessions with them today. And yesterday in the session, I said to them, look, we've got to embrace each other. I said, we don't have to agree with everything. And I said, and, and certainly within our own ethos, we won't agree with each other. And I said, but there's so many factions of people out there. And I said, but there's also a faction of people out there who want us to argue and they want 
want us to fail because they don't want us to own pets. And I said, you've got to think about that. You know, like those people really exist out there. And that's another group of people who are saying they're kind of rubbing their hands together and saying, this is great. You know, these people will bring each other down and destroy each other and over legislate and overcomplicate the ownership of pets. And then we can move in. And I said, so, you know, let's learn and embrace each other and say, if you're not doing the wrong thing, if you're not hurting the dogs or if you're not being an ass and so forth, you do you and we'll do us. We have a style, you have a style. Okay. But let's sometime, you know, when we talk about that vacuum before, and I was talking about that, let's come together in that vacuum and let's appreciate the best of what we're doing and integrate that in each other. I think that's a good move. Yeah, I think so too. I think it can be, I mean, the, the flip side of that coin is that I, I love meeting people as humans, right? Mm. And seeing like, what, why does this work for you? And, and what can I learn from you? Yeah. And as long as people are still in that mode, that works great. I also like, I know it can be easy to sort of be like, well, I have this thing that works and I'm going to stick with it because it's what I know. And so like, that's the, the piece where it's like, I look at, a lot of trainers and that are using force based stuff. And I think, well, I could do that with no force. And so, but I can't just you know, reach in and tell them that um, because they're not in a place to listen. And so it's, that can be really frustrating to see. And, you know, balance trainers, not as much because usually I think folks are, you're looking for, you know, what's the most humane tool that I can do here. Um, but I think just, there should be this constant loop in us in positive trainers and balance and whoever else to say, is there an even more efficient, more humane way that I can do this? Because I think that even the sort of positive community rejected that because they were, they felt like they had the market cornered on as positive as you could be. And I'm like, actually, no, you can empower the animals even more. And so instead they saw that and thought, oh, well, they're not, she's not using enough treats, so it must be evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's a very tricky conversation and we've had a lot of sort of plus R people on the show, but most of them are sort of in the sport dog world. And so in that kind of, in that realm, we can agree that like positive reinforcements the way you teach stuff. And if you want to limit yourself, then, you know, go for it. Like whatever, we're all fighting for points and that's up to right. you. You do, what you, you do what you want to do. But I think when you go into behavior modification, that's where things can get kind of dicey because people can be like, hey, and I, I really do think it's an interesting and complex conversation that, you know, Lima is I think that every good trainer probably prescribes to Lima, whether they know what that really is or not. I think that everybody, you know, who's not an asshole, everybody who's mm. really in it for dogs is in their mind doing that. And that in can- right, in their mind. Yeah. Right, exactly. and, and that can have really interesting limitations by like your understanding of Lima can be influenced by your perception of ethics for sure. And I think that's really the final limiting factor, but prior to that, it's knowledge. Mm. And so it's like, Hey, right. this is the least invasive, minimally aversive thing that I can do. And then when you go, but have you tried this? And they go, no, I don't know what that is. And then you go, well, here's a new least invasive, minimally aversive thing. And I think that sometimes the debates around these things can be really knowledge focused and people can say, you know, I've been in conversations and arguments with people and they say, you just don't know how to use positive reinforcement. And I say, well, I'm pretty fucking good with positive reinforcement. In fact, like if we're going to have a competition of just train the dog with positive reinforcement, I think I'll do pretty good. 
but I'm I'm okay with doing this. And it like it's an ethics piece for me. It's not a knowledge piece. I, I'm I'm obsessively researching this kind of stuff. And it's not to say I know everything, but I know a lot about dogs. And I'm I'm constantly looking for what more. And you know, having been from a relatively force-free background myself, or that was sort of my introduction to it, I'm not a person that I was not imprinted to think that that's not an area I should look, right? So I like, I'm absolutely into that. And I think dealing with, you know, when I deal with working dogs, people just, the outcome is all that's important to working dog people. They just need the outcome, especially when you're dealing with police and military dogs. We just need the dog to work. And however we get him trained, we're not interested, train the dog, get him working on the street. That's all that's important, right? In, in some instances. But I think when you're talking behavior modification, I think as a balance trainer, it behoves you to have all the skills, the differential reinforcement, all of that kind of stuff, because your personal choice or certainly my personal choice on how I'd want to train a dog is not always the way that I will have to train the dog because I have to align with what the owners want. Right. And if the owners are convinced that they, this is, you know, this is the path that I want you to take. I want you to use absolutely no tools. I want you to use no pressure. I want you to use no aversives, no fear, no nothing like, like this is what I want. No inhibitions. I want my dog to be doing only this. I, I have to be able to, I can either lose that client and then the dog, maybe there's no one else that can do the job or I, you know, the dog is left with his condition, his existing issue, or I can say, okay, no worries. Like I've, I've, I've got an education in that. I, I, if that's how we want to go, that's how we'll go. And I think it, it really has to be a personal ethics choice because it's all effective. There's enough, there's plenty of studies to show that the full gamut, like we can achieve it all mostly with whatever path we want to go down, if you're skilled and use it correctly. And the issue is the really loud voices that would have us fight between these two things are not skilled on either side and don't use these things very well correctly on either side. You mm. know? Yeah. And for me, probably the biggest argument that informs which way I go is that I know that the people are using whatever I teach them for dog training, they're using it on their partner. They're using it on their other interpersonal relationships. They're using it to raise children. And, and so all of that is important when I think about what tools I'm going to use. I mean, that's why I'm super passionate about Lima and why you are as well, probably is that it's, it's something that extends beyond just the dog training arena. Absolutely. And that's one of the things, you know, I've spoken about, you know, I did multiple tours in Afghanistan when I was in the army and we don't, the army doesn't know what lemur is, but we, we say in all forms of combat, it's the minimum effective dose because, and there's uh, reasons why we would say otherwise. And like, first of all, we don't want to waste stuff and we don't want to, call, we don't want to waste munitions. We don't want to cause collateral damage. There's all kinds of things, but my programming, you know, and I did 12 years in the, in that unit is that it's like, it's the minimum effective dose. You only do what you need to do. And sometimes you don't have to do anything right? Mm. Like that can be the minimum effective dose can be nothing. And sometimes mm. the minimum effective dose can be a fucking 500 pound bomb. Like it really is what is the minimum that we need to do here. And, and everybody's kind of a perception of that can really vary. I think like, I think, and, and that's an ethics choice. And, you know, I'm not in the business of telling people what their ethics should be, but as a result, I also expect not to be told what my ethics should be, be within the confines of the law. It even reminds me of when I first started doing security and they used to, well, they introduced the use of force escalation chart. And the first part of that chart was officer presence, just being there, you know, yeah. like just being able to walk in and be seen. That's primarily what they would encourage you to do is not do anything, but just be seen, like just walk over and be visible. So you're basically walking into 
you know, the eyeline of, of people who are thinking of doing something or were doing something and seeing how effective that was. And going back onto your points about ethics, some people were happy to do that where other people had poor choice of ethics and wanted to go over there and create an escalation point. Yeah, you know, cause a problem. Right? Cause a problem. And I see people doing that with dog training as well is that they're very – they're not really at peace with themselves or with the situation and they want to get right into the gambit of, you know, being heavy handed or heavy psychologically without really thinking about what they're doing. Like they don't spend time in the moment. Again, I know this sounds a little ethereal, but I was talking to the guys outside about it before with Yoda's teaching to Luke when he says, you're spending too much time thinking about what you were doing or what you're going to do rather than being present in the moment. You know, you don't spend enough time in the now. Grisha, you were talking about it before and, you know, Pat's mentioned it so many times. It's been mentioned by other guests on the show about having a keen sense of observation, like looking and spending time, like you're there and the dog's there and you're present with each other at the moment. Like spend time watching and observing what's going on. It's just a skill that people aren't doing enough of. Like they hear you, but they're so impulsive. They're just so ready to unleash themselves and start to – try and overpower the dog like it's it's ridiculous sometimes and i've been in that in that boat myself and it comes from again you know probably it could be childhood related or it could be just the need to control situations where our friend shame comes back in yeah is that we have to do something now because i'm embarrassed in front of my community right it's the need to prove yourself sometimes there's a fantastic quote and i've butchered a name so many times that i've corrected myself and made sure i get it right it's maya angelou's quote and until somebody can direct me to a better quote i'm using this all the time is do the best you can until you know better and when you know better do better that that is literally my life mantra it's the one quote that i constantly think of is i know i'm getting there i'm not there yet and for me it kind of summarizes the meaning of life is that we're trying to do the best we can until we know better. And then when you do, do better. It's a great quote. Love it. I love it. Hey, one thing I want to talk about before we run out of time, you mentioned before bat boring aggression (laughs) treatment. And it's something I want to touch on because I think that that's a ground where we can certainly agree is that aggression treatment should be boring. Mm. Right. Okay. Yeah. I thought you were going to say, I agree. That is boring. No, but like the, I think the issue is as you know, you teaching so many live events and certainly me and Glenn have both run uh, seminars on aggression Mm. and we did one together in Melbourne and you, actually you did the same thing in Adelaide where there was not a single, you, there was no evidence that any of these dogs were aggressive. It was like a stitch up, right? Because none of the dogs reacted. And there's people who are like, Hey, I want to see the, I want to see the show. I want to see the show. And you're like, you're seeing it. That's yeah. the point. Right. And I think that sometimes, and it's certainly people and we, we you couldn't even call them balanced trainers because they're, showmen who are just fucking up dogs is that the people who will allow the big display of aggression so they can shut it down, that is not good aggression treatment, right? And I think that can you expand on that a little bit and say it's completely unnecessary. Yeah. Exactly. And good it's just causing trauma for no particular reason. That's right. And and to, you know, a good aggression treatment, if you're desensitizing counter condition or, you know, whatever lingo we're going to put around it is that the point is that the behavior never happens. Once it happens, now you're in a position of like, okay, shit, now I have to do something about this. And what you and I might do might be slightly different, but we're still in the like, ah, this is not a good outcome. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want to ever end up on the back foot. And so it's basically, yeah, boring is good. And the way that I do my work is like people walking, watching from across the street would have no idea that I'm working on training 
for aggression. Mm, yeah, perfect. It's obvious what you're doing, you're probably not doing it right. Perfect. So, All right. Yeah. Hey, Trisha, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a really fun conversation. And it I, has. And I want to thank you for your contribution to the industry because mm. I think you're a person that like – a lot of people don't understand that what they're learned off someone in a book or whatever, that the bat style thing, and they might not be doing exactly your prescription on it, but they're doing something similar. And I'm always really interested in like, where's the source of this, right? Like one of the things that I always go back to is everybody teaching scent work now uses scent tubes, right? And it's just a given when you're training, you use scent tubes. Well, mm. Pat Nolan was the guy that was like, you know what, I'm going to make this little thing and I'm going to put scent in there. And it's like, it's a foundation stone of the industry. And I think that your bat is is like that in that a lot of people are doing it and they they don't know that's what they're doing it and that's the original source and so as you say you can track it to probably a hundred thousand dogs and i'd guess there'd be probably at least that or more mm. and so thank you very much for your contribution to the industry i think that you've done an amazing job and and it's a super powerful tool that people can use quite easily on their dog and also thank you for making the time to be brave enough to come to a balanced training seminar and get out of your comfort zone and come and talk to other people. Like you said, Grisha, there was evidence of that, that it was well received because I couldn't get near you. Like you were surrounded by a wave of people multiple times. So that it's encouraging to see that people who have an ethos are also prepared for themselves to get outside their comfort zone and listen to other people and learn, you know, then we can adapt from other people. I think that's encouraging when I see that in our industry is that we can embrace all styles and, and look at everything and be a little bit more, well, should I use the word vulnerable? Cause that's the book title mm -hmm. I was trying to find for us before. It's the power of vulnerability by, how do you say it? Brene Brown? Brene Brown. Brene Brown. Yeah. The power of yeah. vulnerability. And I think it's great. No, I don't think I actually have read that one. And so I will. Mm. And I also wanted to say, yeah, thank you, Glenn, for having me on here and Pat as well. And the, I, so to your quote with, you said earlier about being, being able to, you know, when you know better, do better, that I am at a moment's notice ready to drop bat and do something completely different if it's not the best technique. Perfect. I'm always looking for little tweaks, little ways, big ways whatever I can do. And that's why it's, it's evolved over time and will continue to, because it's, it's not about me and my ego. It's about what's best for the dog. And so that's, yeah, expects it to change. Awesome. That's good to hear. Hey, thanks again. Thank you. Thank I'm you. Do Grisha. the show wrap up. We did it. We made it. Glenn's going to make you listen to our, our, our music. Our, oh, our you've got your music. guitar there. Maybe you can play along. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you've got a bat song too. I saw on your webpage. You've got a song that you you That's jam right. along and sing about bat. You'll have to link that. You'll have to post that yep. on our, our Facebook stuff. Yep. Hey, uh, before I do the wrap up, Grisha, how can people get in contact with you? Plug all your stuff. What's yeah. your website? And, you know, bat is a Whoa. I just well. knock my own microphone out of the way doing wild hand gestures. Yeah, I know. It's a book that people can buy, right? And there's you do online courses, online training. Tell us about all of that kind of stuff before we go. All those things, yes. So Bat 2.0 is a book. I also have the Ahimsa Dog Training Manual, which is for all the various other problems that dogs have. Also socialization in both of those. I teach online. I have over 55 classes right now. And the school, we you can people can get classes as a member or they can get them individually. And the members get everything for $29.99 a month. Uh, that may change eventually in terms of price because it's a really, really good value. It's not just my classes. It's also other people teaching on there. Cool. And I really wanted to plug a couple of upcoming classes. Yeah, go for yeah, it. Go for it. 
December 2nd is effortless dog walking. So that's focusing on that new technique at GrishaStewart.com. And then the other one is urban bats. So bat for city dogs. And that's coming up December 15th. And Mm. we have classes all the time. That sounds exciting. Has anybody got you on the hook to come to Australia when the world opens up again? I know, not yet. So I don't know when the world is opening up again. Yeah, good question. I would love to. All right. Well, she's available, everybody. Yeah. Get ready to be flooded with messages. <laughs> not too frequently, though. To, so to be fair, I had actually decided to not travel for 2020 anyway. So I was already teaching online and then COVID happened. And so I was perfectly Perfect positioned storm. to- Wow. That's good timing. Yeah. What did you know that we didn't? Yeah. What, 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 <laughs> who gave you the heads up? Yeah. I had already developed actually a new, a new format of teaching, which is- to have people come on. So it's a teacher, one trainer, and two or three students, and they're coaching via Zoom, and then everyone else is watching. And mm. so that live course version is was brand new this year that I don't think anybody else was doing, and, and I imagine eventually other folks will do. But cool. It's a, this, these live case studies classes are really great. We've got uh, Mike Shikashio did one, did two. I did one. Um, we've got one on predation coming up this coming uh January 13th. So yeah. Awesome. Very cool. What's the website again? GrishaStewart.com. And the are you guys related? You guys like, are you guys cousins or something? No, nah, it's different Stuart. Different Stuart. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay. You're S-T-E-W-A-R-T, <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm S-T-U-A-R-T. Say again? You're S-T-E-W-A-R-T, right? I'm U-A-R-T. I'm the Scottish version. Totally not related. No, not at all. You're not like the Star Trek captain. No. All right, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Be specific. Tell us what you liked about this episode with Grisha. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. A couple bucks a month gets you an extra episode in there, educational stuff, as well as a live Q&A, which I have coming up in a couple of days mm-hmm. if you're in that tier. And we, you know, you could buy us a private jet if you wanted to. Yeah, uh, with a whisper room inside With it. a whisper room in it so we could record as we fly around the world. Yep. Um, <laughs> if you want to get in contact with us, if you want dog training advice, the best way to do that is to sort of group source information through our Facebook group, post stuff into there. But if you want something specific from me or Glenn, get in contact with us if it's about the show shoot us an email we are info at the canineparadigm.com talk about a teespring store oh yeah yeah we've got teespring as well get in teespring and you can buy yourself a throw rug yep. or wall tapestry yep. or we've got headbands slash masks coming oh they're up. coming yes. yes yes that's gonna be very Neck exciting gators, headbands so yeah yep. yeah that, that's gonna be great I've, and I've, thanks to our artists you know your wife jane stewart yeah avery keller and zoe needy yep and also damon jennings he colored the he coloured it for us. Yeah, he, he digitised it. Yeah, that's why I, I just thought we we've never really thanked all the artists, including yeah. your wife. So yeah. thank you very much, guys, for contributing to our Teespring store. That's it. Goodbye. Thank you, Grisha. Thanks, Grisha. Bye. Grisha! Oops, that's wrong the, one. That's the wrong button. Thank you.